Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, my gosh, this is why we do this thing. Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie is on the show. And my Lord, do we go some interesting places with this one. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Damien. Tristan runs a Turned Out of Punk Instagram and Facebook page. Both of those are found at Turned Out of Punk on those platforms. Uh, to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that we do this podcast. You can also pick up a t-shirt at turnedoutapunk.com. Please grab a shirt uh, over there. And thank you to everyone that has done that. Very much appreciated. Uh, and also you can subscribe to it and rate it on your podcast platform of choice. I play in a band. I sing in a band called Fucked Up. And that probably explains why my voice sounds the way it does right now. Uh, you can find out more information about our band over at fuckedup.cc. We got a brand new 12-inch that just dropped called Oberon. And uh, I think there's uh, one song available right now to listen to, and it's up for pre-order now. So pick up that record, please. Or, or check it out and see if you like it, and then pick it up, please. Also, we've got tour dates coming up in Europe and such, and then to the uh, southwest of the United States. So find out dates over on uh, over at fuckedup.cc. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top... From the band Death Cab for Cutie, Ben Gibbard is on the show. Now, Ben is someone who uh, Tristan has been saying, I got to reach out to, to different people to try and get on the show for a while now. And I, I said, I, you know, I, I would love it. We'd have a really good conversation, but I wanted it to happen organically and, you know, unfold. And you know what? Tristan was right. I should have reached out a while ago because, my gosh, this is a good one. Ben is someone who... Yeah, like, I, I don't know, it's, it's hard to sum up for someone that doesn't know. I think Ben Gibbard through Death Cab for Cutie and, of course, Postal Service and as well as some other solo projects and collaborations that he's done over the years is really, like, one of the defining songwriters of a generation and someone that I, I should have known but for some reason didn't think was also going to undertow shows, but... The egg yolks on my face with this one. Uh, this is a really, really awesome episode. I'm really stoked for you to hear it. Uh, please do yourself a favor and check out Here to Forever, the new single uh, off the brand new, well, impending album, Asphalt Meadow uh, by Death Cab for Cutie. Uh, Asphalt Meadows is going to be coming out on my birthday, September the 16th. So it's a little bit of a birthday present for me this year, but you can check out the new single now, Here to Forever. There's a great video directed by friend of the show, Lance Bangs. Um, you know, this, it all comes back to punk. It always does. Also, though, I implore you, if you have not heard it, check out Ben's cover of Filler. We go in depth on this song in this episode. And so having heard it before you hear us talk about it, it might give you a little bit more context and, uh, that is that. Uh, oh, I'm excited for you to hear this. I'm not going to ramble on it anymore. Asphalt Meadows, pick it up. Uh, pre-order it now. You can pre-order it. And pre-save it on all those streaming services, too. So pre-save it, pre-order it now. Uh, check out the new single, Here to Forever, and sit back, relax, and enjoy Ben Gibbard on Turned Out of Punk. 
Ben, it is an honor to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Damien. This is uh, this is a treat for me too. Well, as I was telling you off air, my brother has been on me to harass some mutual friends to get your phone number for a very long time to ask you to come on here. And I, I resisted because, you know, we, as we both know, like the last thing you want to do is get a call from someone asking for someone else's phone number. So <laughs> I, I resisted, but it appears he was right. I was wrong. And now we finally get to make this happen. But I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Ben, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? So for, for me, my, my origin story is probably similar to a lot of people who grew up in a pre-internet age. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna be 46 this year. Uh, and that was uh, a cassette tape that was stolen from a friend's older brother that had uh, the first Bad Brains record on one side and uh, Descendants Liveage on the other. Uh, and this was, I was living in Northern Virginia at the time. My dad was in the military, so we moved around a lot. And this mu must have been about 1990, 89, 90, maybe. Uh, and, you know, you know, now you think about everybody, you think about Bad Brains or the Descendants, but specifically Bad Brains. And you think like, oh yeah, that's the Bad Brains. They're very fast and very good and very tight. Uh, and we've almost kind of taken them for granted because they've been a part of the cultural lexicon for so long. But, you know, thinking about being 13, 14 years old and hearing that music for the first time, it was a complete and utter mindfuck mm -hmm. to hear people playing that fast. And, and also, mind you, I had a cassette, a dub. It was like, you know, a 90 minute cassette with these two bands on either side. So there was no way to know anything more about them at that point. It was just that this band was very fast on side A, Bad Brains, and they played reggae, which was confusing to me at the time. And then on the other side was the Descendants. And you know, while I, you know, the Bad Brains were amazing to me, it was really the Descendants that uh, I really connected with because the music that I'd grown up with was predominantly Beatles, uh, Beach Boys, uh, ACDC. My dad always had ACDC on. So, um, you know, so it was kind of this, like, they seem to be the perfect, like, amalgamation of um, the energy of, you know, this, the energy on side A, but, you know, with a more melodic sense that was familiar to me because I grew up listening to, you know, traditional, like, classic rock stuff. I heard you talk about the ACDC records that your dad had and also Devo, and it seems like your dad had yeah. pretty awesome taste, you know, like, that's pretty progressive taste for, you know, someone of the era. It's also interesting that he was in the military too. So the idea of someone who is in the military was listening to uh, Devo and ACDC, um, pretty pretty wild to think about. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, Devo was always on in my house too. And I, you know, my dad, you know, everybody's gone to those shows that you tell young people about now. And they're like, whoa, you saw that band? My dad saw ACDC in the late seventies um, in like a gym in Japan while we were living there. You know, That's like, like in a... Yeah, and like a high school gymnasium, you know, and he was like, it's still the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, to, you know, I, he, at, a, at a young age, even even at a young age, I realized that, that was pretty fucking cool, you know. That <laughs> so, is incredible. Holy. Yeah, pretty wild. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, he had pretty eclectic taste given his age and uh, profession, you know. Mm -hmm. It's also, I find interesting how, like, geography affects the way bands are taken up. And I think... When you go to Australia, as you know, like ACDC is a punk band there. Like they're like, they're like the proto-punk 
like they're the stooges in the in the mc5 like i think in in north america they're looked at much more as being like sort of this metal band or hard rock band but there they're they have like a whole different cultural significance i found yeah 100 percent. and it's been my uh belief for a very long time that acdc is the greatest rock band of all time and i and my reasoning for for believing that is they they never fell into any of the mature tropes that even the even the greatest rock bands or punk bands kind of fell into like even the ramones you know admittedly at gunpoint uh you know recorded a song <laughs> with strings you know yeah. you know even the ramones even the ramones <laughs> you know uh you know recorded a couple ballads but like acdc like they never added keyboards they never wrote a ballad all their songs were about rocking or not rocking you know getting chicks or not getting chicks like there was no there, there was no like they they've just stayed on message for you know 50 some years right so i think that if your criteria is how often does a band rock and do they ever not rock then acdc by default would be the greatest rock band of all time uh, you know what and that's that's amazing because i've never thought of it like that because thinking about the Ramones you're right like they were affected by influences around them they sped up because of hardcore and speed metal or they wrote those ballads or yeah once again Phil Spector at gunpoint had them put the strings on but with ACDC it's just this whole purity the whole way through you're you're completely right there's never any outside influence affecting what they're doing except for obviously membership changes but apart from that they're they're still on message the whole time yeah and that's that's no slight to the ramones or anybody else of course you know but even most recent the most recent acdc record power up that came up came out two years ago it's fucking amazing like it sounds like acdc there's nothing you're, you're whenever acdc puts a new record out which obviously is is not that often you know what you're gonna get you're not gonna put the thing on and be like what what they got sequences on this thing like it's never that you know it's always it's always just like straightforward like kind of punk inspired just guitar rock and it's it doesn't need to be any smarter than it is like you know sometimes people i hear people complaining about that acdc is a dumb rock band it's like no they just they're just they don't need to put on airs they don't need to pretend like they're road scholars they're just coming out and just singing about rocking and that's that's what i want from them i don't want anything else from them. yeah and it's, it's interesting how they you know it, they they become kind of they become the part of the dna for australian music to this day like you look at those new bands like anal and the sniffers and, and all these bands mm -hmm. it's like that's still there and kind of in the same way i look at seattle having that and it's sort of seattle general area but like the effect of like the u-men and like you know later mm -hmm. the mono men and and i've heard you talk about coffin break like all these bands seem to have that kind of affect them or there's sort of like a garage rock leaning maybe it's not the u-men actually if you if it's not the u-men you've got another band <laughs> that kind of did it but it's interesting how certain bands and their influence is felt for generations out of the rock music that comes after them oh i would agree 100 and you know I, for us uh you know in the northwest and although the monomen were not a an influence per se on us musically or me musically when when we when I moved to Bellingham to go to college and the mono men were you know kind of you know based in Bellingham running Estrus records you know it, it was it was very unique to have this well-respected well-known indie label run out of a small college town in the 
you know, Northwest outposts in the country, you know? So we never, we didn't roll those guys. Those guys were, they were much older than us, or at least old, old, older enough at that point that they felt like they were older. You know I mean? When you're 20 and people are 29, they feel like they're 50, right? Huge gap um, at that point. Huge gap. Yeah. But, you know, even though musically they weren't particularly an influence on me or many people that I knew just in playing indie rock, you know, as their aesthetic and their, ethic were, were very much in keeping with a, yeah, a DIY kind of spirit that we all were interested in embodying. Bellingham also has some low-key kind of, you know, amazing classic bands coming out of that band, The Accidents Kill the Bee Gees. Have you heard that single? No, I don't know that. No, I don't oh, know that one. Awesome. It's on No Threes Records, which I guess okay. was, I think that's the Fastbacks label. And I was going to ask you, were they an influence at all on you? Like on Pinwheel kind of era stuff? Um... You know, for me, when I was in high school, like back it up, I'll back it up a little bit and talk mm. about kind of, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I grew up in Bremerton. Uh, well, I, I moved from uh, Northern Virginia back to Bremerton where I was born. My parents, my dad was leaving the military and we were kind of settling there. So I was in uh, high school in Bremerton for, you know, that period and then on to Bellingham. But when I moved back to Bremerton in 91, it was kind of this perfect moment to be moving back into the Northwest because I moved back in June of 91 and then what happens after that, right? You're um, broke. Right, exactly, yeah. So, um, but for me, I, in, you know, growing up in Bremerton, Silverdale area, you know, it was almost as if like Bad Religions 8085 was the Velvet Underground and Nico for <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people that I knew in high school, right? It was, that was, you know, Bad Religion was, and I, I think Bad Religion is awesome, but they were kind of like this, they were the, they were the band that was the aesthetic that a lot of people were kind of starting to model themselves off of at that period. Um, and for me, I was, you know, while I liked that music, I, I found myself being more attracted to bands, as you, like, as you mentioned, like the Fastbacks or uh, Dinosaur Jr. or Tree People. Uh, which is Doug Marsh from Bill Stills' first band. Um, and a lot of stuff that was going on in the Northwest that was like punk adjacent and clearly coming out of a punk aesthetic and a DIY kind of mentality, but that was not, um, that, that would not be classified by anybody as being punk. By um, me, you're throwing out punk bands to me, Ben. Those are all punk bands <laughs> in my mind. Okay, well, fair enough. Then, okay, then, then, then I, I'm glad that we're establishing a wider definition of the word punk than what I grew up with, <laughs> which I, tends to be the case, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, all these, but yeah, these bands were kind of they were they were you know they, they had moments where they played fast and aggressive, but they also really melodic. And for me, that was kind of that was kind of the um, aesthetic that I was initially attracted to, which was not so much that you know I wasn't necessarily mad that you know. A, cops stole my skateboard but i was more just upset that a girl didn't want to talk to me or something you know <laughs> so so uh so I, I much more fell into the much more fell into kind of the um uh songs about just kind of normal stuff and um and you know they love you they don't love you i'm lonely i'm not lonely you know i'm that kind of stuff just very very dare i say emo type music <laughs> <laughs> Well, like, did you go to school with like Mike and MXPX and those guys? They went, well, uh, Tom, the guitar player went to my high school. I went to Olympic high school. They went to central Kitsap. 
the other two. So, and I, and it, you know, it's, it's weird to say this now because we, we went to school and lived maybe three miles away from each other, but uh, what was happening in that scene across town was um, uh, it was much, it, it was kind of, it was, it was kind of, it was somewhat removed from me and my friends and what we were doing. I mean, we would see those guys at shows, at, you know, little Grange Hall shows and stuff like that. But at the time, and, you know, also keep in mind that this is being filled, you know, I, you know, we were, we were kids at this point, right? We were 15, 16, 17, you know, the fact that they were, they at least at the time identified as a Christian band was problematic to a lot of yeah. me and my friends. Uh, of course, now it doesn't matter at all. It's not something that uh, concerns me in the least bit about anybody's religion so much as so far as I'm not trying to tell, you know, oh, let's, oh, I don't know. So let's say women, what to do with their bodies. I don't know. Yeah. It's a thing that seems to be up to. Um, so, so at the time, you know, we were aware that they were kind of around and I saw, I saw like, I remember seeing a early version of them, I believe with their original guitar player in the basement of a church or something like that. Um, uh, in God, who knows, maybe 91, 92. Um, but yeah, they were kind of, they were kind of at least rolling in a slightly different scene than the kids that I was hanging out with. Um, and, and I, and, and they also got a lot of unfairly got a lot of flack, I think because of the religious thing. Um, so it's only fitting that, you know, of all of these, you know, kids and people in bands and stuff like that, with the, I guess the, the exception of me, um, you know, they, they, they made it out and they made a real name for themselves and, um, and, and, you know, built this like long career for themselves. And, you know, you know, today I have nothing but respect and admiration for what they've built, but, you know, at the time, obviously being a kid, you're, you know, there are, you kind of, it's, 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 it's always been interesting to me that while punk is, is meant to be, uh, you know, kind of, kind of an anything goes aesthetic that, there tend to be rules in, in, in place, uh, especially when you're, <laughs> there's a lot of rules, especially when you're young. Uh, you know, I, I was, you know, around that time, a lot of my friends were getting into straight edge and that was just like, that seemed like that was like being in the Marines or something. It was a very, <laughs> there were a lot of, you know, a lot of do's and don'ts and there was a dress code, you know? So, uh, but that stuff never quite appealed to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's funny also when you're a kid, cause you find this thing, and and you it's so amazing that you want to hold on to it and you're very possessive and territorial and like you're saying like it's like oh unity we're all here but you're also you're like oh the fuck those kids that are exactly like me but i don't know them because this is my thing and not their thing like it's 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 not that severe but i find it is something that i guess culture at that point too was something that you you held on to a lot tighter in regards to like music culture because it was so hard to find this information, you know, you had to pay for the information then, whereas mm -hmm. now it feels a lot more open and anyone can do it. Yeah. And I, I, I think you're, I think you're spot on with that. And, you know, when we were younger, we're probably around the same age, maybe a yeah. little bit general area. Um, yeah. It's like in order to buy, in order to even hear the records that we wanted to hear, we had to go over, to Seattle from Bremerton, which is about an hour's ferry ride, you know, walk up to Capitol Hill, go to Fallout Records or or Orpheum or any of the old record stores that were on Capitol Hill, buy the records, then take them home and then listen to them. And uh, and you know, and some of these seven inches and you know LPs became like these coveted items that only a few of us had. 
And and I and so yes, the, you know, I think we all wanted to kind of protect our intellectual kind of um, uh, the intellectual property that we had accrued uh, by you know you know by like what felt like um, kind of pretty extreme measures. But I think what also is in play at that age is that when you're a teenager, and I say this with all respect to teenagers listening and teenagers everywhere, you know, you haven't made shit, you haven't done shit, you haven't uh, built shit. Um, and, you know, you, when we are teenagers, we are forming our identities and, and, and we have to form our identities around the things that we like because we haven't made anything yet for the most part. So uh, to, to form an identity that is based around obscure music in a way telegraphs to people, I am more unique than you. I am more interesting than you because I am into things that uh, are difficult to find. And if they're difficult and obscure, that makes me kind of an interesting person. And I don't think that's, an, that's a, that's, you know, I certainly did that myself, you know, sub subconsciously. I don't think it was, I don't think anybody does it, you know, um, intentionally or with any seriousness, but I think that's just kind of the default to being young is that, we have when young people define themselves by the things that they like, and because they really haven't had the time yet to kind of form their own identities. I think in punk also, <clears throat> it was interesting because David Bazan, when he was on, talked about how like Ian MacKay kind of fulfills almost like a like a a Christ-like role in like an internalized Ian MacKay, not the actual Ian MacKay, but like this sort of like moral guide that you have throughout music, and it's. It is kind of like this thing that when you're a young person, I don't mean to put this on you, but for me, it was this thing that I found as a young person that filled a spiritual void in me in that, that I could like, I had people that I could look up to and put on pedestals and, and make into these chase versions that probably had no bearing on the actual real person, but they were like my, my gods in a way, like not to overstate it, but it kind of was that way. So there is almost like this fanatical devotion to the sect that you find to this thing, like to go back to the MXPX thing. I completely get that because there was a divide, almost like a religious divide that you were like either a, a tooth and nail punk or you were secular and were like anti it. And that's, I, I don't know, I'm rambling now, but I find it so fascinating about Seattle that they have these connections between, you know, the, the Jeremy Enoch, uh, reason to hate stuff. And then also like mm -hmm. undertow that's very anti-religious at the same time. And they could still somehow coexist and, and be in the same place at the same, in the same time. Yeah, and I saw I saw many an undertow show back oh. in the day with my with my straight edge friends. They were they were great. They were great. Um, that is yeah, making I, me so. I don't mean to cut you off, <laughs> but like when I because I, I heard you drop the straight edge thing a couple times in interviews, and obviously no one follows up on it. And I'm like, oh please God, say he saw undertow. Please say he saw. Oh, undertow. of course I did. Of course I did. How, I was I was hanging out with a bunch of straight edge punks, like, you know, in the early nineties, that was a, that was a prerequisite. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, those guys are great. And, and I completely relate to you and, and your conversation with Dave in, as it pertains to Ian McKay, because he was like that for me as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like, you know, I, I, I always loved Fugazi, but I wasn't, um, they, they, they inspired like fanatical devotion. And and I'm and I think in a lot of ways still do, and but I was always more attracted to Ian Mackay as as you kind of said, almost like a Christ-like figure, mm -hmm. because it seemed as if 
you know, when looking at his career starting from Teen Idols through Minor Threat into Fugazi, that they never made a mistake. He never made a mistake. There were looking back now, you you can see you can see some you can see that that he was a human being like everybody else. And there were some moments here and there that probably he would have changed if he could have. But um, but, but that's it. You know, that would be something you'd have to ask him personally, of course. Um, but I think for me and my friends, we, we were all searching for uh, someone to just tell us what the rules were. Yeah. The same way that I think a lot of kids and children and you know, one can argue that teenagers are still technically children in a way, uh, or sometimes they act like them. And I certainly, I did, of course, I certainly did myself. I'm not um, going to tell my teen- teenager upstairs that you said that because he would be very okay. So, okay, yeah, he'd be very upset. <laughs> but I agree, um, I definitely agree. But you know, but but there's something about being young that you want your independence and you want to be your own person, but you also desperately crave structure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a large part as to why. Uh, and how Ian McKay became that figure for a lot of us of our age group is that we wanted to be different than the jocks at our high school. We wanted to create our own paths, but we also needed someone to kind of guide us a little bit. We needed someone to tell us what the do's and don'ts were. And, you know, while, while I, I certainly respect um, straight edge movement and I completely respect what it did for a lot and admire what it did for a lot of people who were struggling with, uh, drugs or alcohol or who were in families that uh, drugs and alcohol were a problem. That to me seemed like that was the, uh, that was the extreme of that, that like we, that was the most rules you could possibly attach to something and still call it a rebellious subculture, you know? Um, And it was very comforting and very helpful to a lot of people that I knew. So I would never speak disparagingly about it. It's not like I think it was dumb or stupid or or whatever, but, you know, but it, but it, but it was like that, that straight edge to me was, that was the extreme of that, mm-hmm. the extreme of like, okay, we need to have some rules and structure and we need, we need something, we need, a, um, we need like a template here. And, you know, this, this involves the most rules and that's where I feel the most comfortable. So I'm going to go to the place with the most rules. If that makes sense. Absolutely. So I got, oh, fuck. Ah. Sorry. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I don't know what happened to Mike. Uh, I got a spam call and it came through on my computer and now I'm just trying to reopen <laughs> the zoom. There it is. Oh God. Okay, great. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. No, and it's, okay. it's, it's really interesting. Um, what you brought up there about Ian as this person and the human being, because I think like with anyone that you put on a pedestal, you tend to just idealize this person and, you know, just make them into something other than a human being. And it wasn't till I heard your cover of filler, that I actually thought about those lyrics in terms of anything other than a song that I loved that was full of rage, like listening to your version of it. Like I, you really hear like a, a sadness and a fear and an anxiety about what's happening around them to people. And, you know, like when he's doing it, obviously the rage and I, you know, I've studied those lyrics. I've covered that song myself, but like hearing mm-hmm. you kind of put the vulnerability in it, I was like, Oh, this is a, this is a teenager trying to figure the world out, writing this song. And there's a vulnerability in that anger. And it just, you know, when we obviously yell to, to cover up our vulnerabilities and you really do see it in his words. And it was, it, once again, it's just through hearing you do it that I, I kind of stopped and thought about it for a second. 
Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love minor threats so much, and 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 I've I've often felt that minor threat was far more melodic than and catchy than I think a lot of people gave them credit for. Which I don't. I certainly don't necessarily think it was what they were going for, but it's. I, it, you know, unlike a lot of bands from that era, I find myself going back to that the complete discography more than I would a lot of bands from that era. Mm. Um, and I think in the, with the case of Filler, you know, from my perspective, that song's about is being written by it from the perspective of someone who's losing uh, contact with somebody that they care deeply about and they're losing them to religion or a relationship or whatever. And when you're at that age and you have this, this gang of friends and you feel like you're gonna be together forever and you're in bands or you're going to shows or whatever, and then someone kind of starts to drift out of that circle, uh, it feels very personal. And it, and it feels as it feels not as if that person is moving on to another phase in their life, but that they are rejecting you. And I, I love that song for many reasons, but in the lyric, the, that vulnerability and um, that kind of hurt on the part of the narrator who is trying to work through their feelings about this person that is kind of stepping away from them. And, you know, in, in the context of like a hardcore song, it, it takes on, you know, in, in the original version, it takes on a much more, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it almost seems that it's not about one person. It's just about anybody leaving this click that we have, we have found this way to live and, uh, and we need, we need strength in numbers and you're leaving us. So fuck you. But in the lyric itself, and you know what I tried to pull out in my little version was like, yeah, just the vulnerability of the lyric, and it's a beautiful, it's a it's a beautiful lyric, honestly. Like it's you know it's stripped of its kind of hardcore context. It's a it's a really touching song, mm -hmm. and what was interesting is after I, I kind of put that out on SoundCloud a couple of years ago, uh, Michael Azarad, um, who of course famously wrote "Our Band Could Be Your Life," reached out to me. We we had worked on some projects together back in the day and he was like hey um did you are, is that the cover of ian's uh piano version of that song and i was like what are you talking about he was like well apparently i had heard this is michael speaking i had i had heard that ian wrote a lot of those songs on piano and i was wow. like i i was like i did not know that had not heard that and and this is 100 not <laughs> Yeah. Uh, this is just a, a reinterpretation of that of, of the lyric more than anything else. So I'd be very curious to, to know if that is true, and also if any of those demos exist anywhere because that would be pretty illuminating. I didn't see a piano in the Discord house, so maybe he switched uh, at a certain point to stop writing on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It could have been one. It could have been one of those like uh, could have been one of those kind of like things you tell a journalist to kind of throw them <laughs> off the scent, maybe too. So who knows. <laughs> Well, it's amazing, like when you think about Ian McKay and all the the legends and myths that are just completely false and fantasies. Where like it seems like in every town there was some old dude that worked at the record store who claimed that they smoked weed with Ian McKay after a Fugazi show one time. And, <laughs> like, without fail, I've run into that person everywhere. I think Jeff Lott from Fifteen even claimed it at one point too. I remember hearing. I mean, you know, even if they did, what's wrong with that? Honestly, I mean, I mean, the dude. 
I, I mean, you know, the dude, that's a, that's a lot of work they're doing, man. They're like driving the van, they're unloading the box truck, mm-hmm. they're sending the PA, they're playing two, three hour shows, people jumping on stage, spitting on them, trying to fight them. They had to unload, settle the show. I mean, after all that, I'd probably want to smoke a joint too, you know? I, I, I offered him just in case, and he was not taking it. So maybe he just didn't <laughs> want to do it with me. But, but it's also interesting with Minor Thread that you heard that, that, you know, the melodic side of it. Because to me, Minor Thread is still coming out of a punk tradition. Like, they're super influenced by the vile tones. They're super influenced by a lot of that British punk. And then it's almost like that next wave with like SSD control that you have people like rejecting that melody completely. And I think that's where mm-hmm. it starts getting a lot more codified as hardcore versus punk versus indie versus alternative, you know, like it just, it feels like at one point we were all punk. Like you listen to the wipers, it sounds like mm-hmm. alternative music, right? It doesn't necessarily sound like black flag or anything, but yet it could all fit under the umbrella at a certain point. Yeah. And I think that uh, from my, from my kind of perspective, you know, the bands that you mentioned along with, you know, Minor Threat and Black Flag kind of codified, like, this is the sound of hardcore. This mm-hmm. is what it is. And uh, in order, and if you're doing anything that doesn't sound like this, it's not hardcore. And uh, we're going to just, we're going to murder you on stage. So it's like, you know, so, so that, so it seems as if that kind of, that was a, that was the template for what hardcore kind of, kind of, it seems as if, hardcore got very boring i should i'll be back up and say that again so no no you're not you're not the okay, first okay yeah okay yeah i mean from from my perspective it seems like the fact that these bands all came to define what hardcore was to such an extent that you had to play like these bands to be a hardcore band mm-hmm. is kind of what killed hardcore for me it, it made it boring it made it made it uh it, it was a set of rules that it's like, okay, you have to, it has to be this BPM and it has to be singing like this and the guitars have to be like this. And then when you have, when every band is trying to sound like those bands, it, it, the, the genre just got very uninteresting to me. Um, and, and to me, and that was a similar kind of thing that happened, uh, in my opinion, a, a similar codification happened in what became kind of an, like a SoCal Orange County punk sound yeah, where absolutely. there became, you know, bad religion we spoke about earlier, amazing band became such a template for virtually every band that was starting around that time. And in the years after that, that just became the default sound of what punk was for a, a very long time. It's certainly through my high school years and into my early college years that this this was this was the sound this is what you had to this is what it had to sound like to be punk and i i've often gravitated much more to eras of punk that were really anything goes uh it's really an it's really a state of mind and uh an ethic more than it is a sound and you know the cb early cbgb's you know uh era is of course the most obvious one where you have the talking heads and television and Blondie and, and whoever else and Ramones all under the umbrella of punk. Um, and those, those periods before the rules start getting codified, I, I think are the most interesting musically. Um, but, you know, if somebody thinks that that early eighties hardcore sound or 
uh, late eighties, early nineties, SoCal sound that that is punk and that's what they like to listen to, then that's cool too, you know, but for, for, you know, for my, like for my listening kind of enjoyment, I tend to kind of gravitate more towards these kind of amorphous eras of punk that, uh, or the, or the, or the eras where people are leaving hardcore and saying like, you know, there's gotta be another way to do this. Yeah. It, Lou, Lou Barlow and Mascus say it was committed for life by seven seconds. When that came out, they were like hardcore's dead because that's when bands started trying to sound like minor threat. And they love the first seven seconds, seven inch, but they feel by the second one, it was, it was going a certain way. And like you're saying, and that's certainly what happened with that Epifat sound in Southern California, where every yeah. band, you know, had to make a certain type of record and that spread around the world. Like it's amazing when that sound got to Sweden and all the Swedish bands started sounding like that too. But like you're saying, it's these eras, be it early New York or early Seattle, where you have all these different people that just don't fit in that come together and build a scene. And I think you like, you know, you look at early Seattle where you have like the fastbacks that we talked about, like the silly killers, the farts, but then like Steve Fisk and, and, and anonymous, yeah. uh, and you worked with them, right? Yeah. I worked with Steve. Uh, uh, I worked with Steve Fisk on a, a soundtrack for a documentary on Kurt Cobain called about a son that came out, I believe in 2006 or seven. And, um, kind of coming back around to Michael Azarad, the the movie is a it's a kind of an interesting impressionistic film that is is more akin to Koyanastasi or something like that than a traditional narrative documentary. And mm. the the entire documentary is built around the interview tapes that Michael Azarad did with Kurt Cobain for the book that uh he wrote or goes as you are right That's... yeah yes come as you are yeah. yeah so that that is the bed by which um we we scored to that we didn't have any visuals we just scored to the audio so we would you know we would be listening and there'd be a big gap and then kurt would be eating cereal on the tapes so like, well let's drop out there because that's kind of a human moment kind of come back with some kind of thing but yeah i mean to me I, I, seattle and portland but specifically seattle had always been this weird outpost that bands didn't come to and and this was, you know, slightly before my era, but I have enough friends who grew up in that era that I feel I can speak on it. Um, you know, it's like you had to kind of make your own entertainment. You know, no, you know, like, like no bands were coming up to play in Seattle. I mean, you've, you know, you've toured so many times, you know, you know how it is up here where you can play Vancouver and you can play Seattle and you can play Portland. And then it's at least a 15 hour drive to any other city you know, quote unquote, worth playing or any, I should say any other major market, you know, that would be, uh, that would be open to a, a band such as yours, or like a, certainly in the, in the back in the day for us, an, an indie band that nobody really knew outside of large cities. I mean, yeah, you could try to play a show in Spokane in like 1998, but no one's going to come. You know, you could try to play a show in uh, Sheraton, Wyoming, but no one's going to come. You know, so it, it always, you know, there were, it was, I think a lot of bands, especially in a pre-internet age, were just like, you know what, let's go to San Francisco and then that's where the tour stops. Mm. Uh, we, we end there or, or we start in San Francisco and we go, we go down and we go around where we can play more cities. Um, so it, it really, it, I think it's one of the many reasons that Seattle became this uh, really kind of uh, fruitful musical city in the, 80s and into the early 90s because people kind of had to make their own fun there wasn't there wasn't another option it's also it 
you know, from, you know, Cleveland, obviously, but like the, and Detroit, but I think for me, Seattle's like the, the birth of this punk thing in a lot of ways too, like going back to like the whalers and sort of the garage rock era and the Sonics. But, but even like, have you heard of this band? I think they're called the Tupperwares and it's like pre screamers. El Duce was apparently in it for a little while. Bill really? Rifkin was in it for a minute. Um, and, uh, Nikki six played with them for a moment as well. Wait, do you, do you mean Bill Rieflin? Bill Rieflin, sorry, Bill Rieflin. Okay. Yeah. No, I do not know this band, but now I need to. I need to check. I need to find this band because I, I, I we were, I was buddies with Bill, um, who's an incredible drummer, and you know, I mean, played in the Blackouts. Yes. Blackouts were incredible. Yeah, I, I believe he. I don't know if he was in the Beakers or his wife was in the Beakers, but they were another kind of really interesting early '80s kind of proto-punk band in Seattle. Did a, did a split with Steve Fisk, a split tape. Yeah. Way yeah, and, and and Steve was here. You know, Steve was in Olympia or, or Ellensburg of all places. I still have not gotten an answer straight from Steve <laughs> how he ended up in Ellensburg. But you know, obviously working with the trees and everything like that. Um, yeah, and, and and you mentioned the Sonics. It's it might be a controversial uh, uh, take, a hot take, but I've often thought that the Sonics could be considered uh, when we talk about who was the first punk band or proto punk band? It, it seems, it seems as if the Stooges always tend to kind of come up first in a lot of people's minds and, and for good reason. Um, but just going a little bit earlier than that and just listening to those records, I mean, those records still sound completely unhinged. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you have, you know, the engineer of Kearney Barton, who was this, kind of very legendary engineer and producer here in Seattle who was allowing these bands to come into his basement and just completely like blow the faders into the red. <laughs> and, you know, when you listen to Hero of the Sonics, it, 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 it's, so, it's so different than most of the recordings that were coming out of anywhere at that point, because recording, you know, recording a rock band in 1964 was something that you did very cleanly and you wanted to make sure you could hear everything and, oh, we can't have it too loud. And here you have the Sonics just, you know, the vocals are distorting, the drums are distorting, everything is just pushed in the red. And, you know, of course, you know, I, I don't, I doubt that the Sonics or anybody at that point really knew what they were kind of creating or would have had any sense of what the legacy of what they were doing would be. But I think that when you listen to those first couple Sonics records, you, you could make the case that they, they're the first kind of proto-punk band in this country. Yeah, I thousand percent agree with you. And I think like, it's amazing how those records still kind of weirdly sound fresh. Like I know you're, you're, you know, Beatles fan, uh, but like, to me, the Beatles sound very much tied to an era stones as well. Like all these bands sound tied to their era in a way that the Sonics still sound like if a band came out today and played like that, it would still be incredible. Yeah. And I think that bands do sound that way today because of how influential those records were. Mm -hmm. No, I meant it I mean, came out today. I'm sorry. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So I got you. I got you. I got you. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Oh, there yeah, is still. Well, 100. Absolutely. I mean, there. You know, there's still there is there's still that kind of touch of Chuck Berry boogie woogie. That's kind of a dated sound that I haven't heard anybody try to revive at any point yet. I'm still waiting for the. I'm still waiting for like the Jerry Lee Lewis Chuck Berry style rock and roll to make like a Sha Na Na style. You know. Uh, appearance in the you know i feel like we've kind of 
we've kind of gone back and, and uh, reassessed and reevaluated and copped pretty much every style of rock and roll at this point. And we've kind of left the fifties alone. So, so I feel like maybe, maybe there's some young people who are going to start mining that, but um, the Mark but Ronson, he, he, Jerry Lewis record eventually is coming out. You'd feel exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Totally. Totally. But, but yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that if, I think if, you know, if, if, if they came out today, they would be, uh, they would be like the strokes were 20 years ago. People would just go nuts. Well, yeah, and like, I, I guess I want to revive my earlier, th earlier thesis about the U-Men because you're the ACDC of Seattle that affects that sound is hundred percent the Sonics. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the Sonics are a band that you're, when you kind of come of age in this era and you say you're into music, that's one of the records that is, you know, kind of virtually handed to you is like, okay, well, okay, you need to have these five records if you're going to start a band in the Northwest. And, and the first one of those records is Here Are the Sonics. Like that's yeah. the first one you have to kind of get acquainted with. The starter pack. Exactly. Yes. The starter pack. Yeah. Um, I, I could talk to you today forever, but I, I know we have a limited amount of time. So there's a bunch hey man, of I'm, I, I, Oh, I'm good. I'm good to go a little bit longer too, because I'm not getting picked up to 130 and it's 11:45. So I'm okay. I'm really enjoying this. If you want to keep talking? Let's do it. Oh my God, I got so many more questions. Whenever you All want right. to tap out, <laughs> let me know. Okay, I'll I'll raise my hand when we're getting close. Yeah. We'll do it like that. Um, who did post nasal drip play with? Like, what scene did you guys <laughs> fall in? Oh my God, how where did you find that? Well, you've made reference to it a couple times in interviews, and I can't find any recordings. And I got to say, I'm a huge pinwheel fan. I think that pinwheel demo needs to be reissued because that thing is fucking awesome. But we'll talk about that in a second. But back you are to the, you are the, I will say that you were the first person I've ever heard say that about pinwheel. So that's that that makes that's 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 an interesting take, oh, uh, which, I, which I appreciate, which I appreciate. <laughs> um, no, so so post nasal drip PND. It was a band I started in high school. Um, I was I played drums. I think I found a drum kit for like seventy five bucks. Uh, it was my friend Matt Gomez on bass, um, my friend Scott Furlan on guitar, and Dan Modiak was the singer. We played a couple shows. I think there might be a badly recorded four track tape somewhere that Matt might have. And when I get off this zoom i will i'll give matt a buzz and see if he has it because i just love to get it from him and digitize it yeah, I, i'm sure it doesn't I'm, I'm sure i'm sure it doesn't sound that great um <laughs> but but you know our but yeah i mean we were we we felt it was we felt it was worth starting a band and we were trying to start a band that was kind of in opposition of all of the bad religion clones that were kind of uh, existing at the, at the same time in our little town, our little scene. Uh, but I, I would imagine if I fired that tape up right now, it would sound a lot like 8085, probably. It, it probably probably sounds a lot like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but leaning more towards how could hell get any worse than to the more melodic stuff? Yes, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. No, we there was there was Dan. Dan really couldn't sing. So that really wasn't uh, that, you know, he, he wasn't the singer because he could sing. He just had a lot of things he wanted to say about animal rights. And uh, so he, he became the singer. So who would you play with? Would you play with like Undertow or were there other bands that kind of were part of more your local scene? Oh, it was all, this was in, this was like in Bremerton, Silverdale, Washington. So no, we never played a show anywhere with any with any reputable band like any or just or any band that had records out. We played a lot with this band called the Jack Trippers that were based around there. We played, you know, honestly, being Did the Jack Trippers put out a record. I think they have a I seven. I don't think they ever. No, I don't think. Do they have a seven inch out? 
I don't know. That sounds very familiar, but I might be confusing it with another band. If if they do, I will let you know somehow. Yeah, please do. Yeah, we will. I'll we'll trade information after this because I would okay. love to. If they do, I'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, but you know, we just we. I think we might have played a couple Grange Hall shows, a couple couple you know like basement shows or whatever. It was kind of, you know, in Bremerton, Silverdale area. There really wasn't there 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 wasn't like a venue. There wasn't a. It was just a matter of we would rent Grange halls and Scout halls until they were abused to an extent where we couldn't afford to rent them anymore. I think there was a, there was a place called, I, I want to say it was called president's hall. That might not be it, but um, I remember we would rent it for the, the rent started out at 50 bucks for the night. And by the time, you know, after four or five months of punk shows happening there and many broken doors and toilets and windows smashed i think it, it got to be around 500 dollars to rent and and we had to tap out at that point because you know we weren't making enough money even at the door for the people who actually did pay to cover that so that kind of that kind of that kind of mixed that venue as a place where we could do uh we could do shows uh and then we moved on found another grange hall or social hall or something like that that didn't know who we were and then ruin that place and then move on to the next one. So that was just kind of, that was just kind of how it went. It's probably not dissimilar to the way these things happen all over the country, you know? Yeah. It's unfortunately, I think the reality of a DIY promoter is you only have that space for so long before the Masons get sick of you. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, now as an adult, I can completely understand it. But at the time I felt that we were being oppressed, you know, I thought that we were, you know, we were being censored or that this was like the man kind of coming down on us. And I'm like, well, if I own this building and every time I let these kids use it, they destroyed it. I probably would. I'd probably get to a point where I wasn't interested in renting it to them anymore. You know? Yeah. I don't know what it is, though, about public washrooms that even when you're an adult and you're in like a 21 and over club, people have trashed that bathroom unless there's an attendant there. Like there's just something about some people get in the bathroom. They just need to fuck it up for some reason. Yeah, we had this back in the van days in Death Cab. We had this um, acronym GBBD, Girls Bathroom Before Doors, so that if you if you showed up at a club and you needed to use the bathroom as humans tend to have to do, uh, you you would maybe we'd load in and you kind of get a look around and you'd be like, this is a GBBD situation, guys. So uh, if anybody anybody needs to use a real bathroom, that's probably uh, you should do it before the door before uh, people show up. And it, I think that was that was in play virtually in every club that we ever went to, with the exception of the Grog Shop in Cleveland, the old Grog Shop. I don't know if it's still in the same location, but at least when we were playing there in like the late '90s, early aughts, um, it was like you you had to go like go to like a restaurant, you know, you had to go you had to go for a bar and uh, you know buy a drink, even if you didn't drink, and like just go like, where is your bathroom? And like you can't use the bathroom without buying something. Okay, I'll have a plate of fries. Put them right here. I will be back in yes. a couple of minutes. Uh, but yeah, I've I've never understood that. I, I've never understood um, the impulse to destroy a toilet yeah. or, or 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 rip a door off a stall. That's yeah. I, I, I'm not quite. I'm not sure what what that was all about. And maybe it was the club owners doing it, taking the doors off so that people didn't do coke in there. I don't know, but. It, it was a it's a very peculiar kind of situation that I've never got any clarity on. I've, I've never I've never understood it. Yeah. Our rule in fucked up is when you arrive, use the bathroom immediately because it's not going to get better as the night goes on. Like whenever you arrive, yeah. that's the best you're going to see it. That's the best you're going to see it. And our Nick, our bass player, uh, in, at least in theory, invented 
uh, a technique he calls the mountain climber, which would be you take your shirt off, you hook it on the, the door of the hook <laughs> and then hang over the toilet. Uh, so it's to not, uh, not kind of get anything on a particular, and you know, and I don't think the mountain climber was ever employed, but it was, it was thrown out as a warning in the sense of like, Hey, it's kind of a mountain climber situation in there. So, you know, uh, tread lightly. I think, we, I think we found out how the, uh, the uh, doors are getting torn off the stalls. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You don't even try the mountain climber. But maybe, maybe we did, maybe we did invent it. Maybe it was like maybe it had been in play for a long time. Uh, you mentioned the tree people earlier. Did you ever get a chance to see them? I love those records. Oh, I saw them numerous times when I was in, yeah, in, in like 91, 92. Yeah. Um, I, they, they, I think the first time I heard tree people was on a, like, so we growing up in Bremerton, Silverdale area, it, it was the end, which is the large commercial, commercial alternative station had just started broadcasting in 91, I think. But, and we listened to that and we listened to the local show and the you know punk shows on that. But we also really loved listening to KGRG, which is a the Green River Community College station, uh, which is kind of tucked in the valley um, between Tacoma and Seattle. And at my friend Craig's house, for whatever reason, we could get KGRG on the radio. We could, it, for whatever reason, the signal made it to his house. It still doesn't make sense to me. But we would, we would take, we would just go to his house, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night because there's nothing to do, and just listen to the radio and just put 90 minute tapes into the cassette deck and record the radio because, mm-hmm. and then, you know, make mixed tapes of that or which what totally blew our minds that you could call the number that they gave out and get a person who was on the radio and you could ask, what was that song? And they'd be like, Oh, it's this, it's that. Uh, and that was, that was a complete eye opener to us because if you tried to call a commercial radio station, you're not going to get the DJ. You're not going to, you're not going to get anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that introduction to college radio was, was really uh, made a huge impression on me. And one of the many things I heard for the first time on KGRG was the song Liquid Boy by Tree People. And to me, it, it was as if I'd found my band. I, I'd found my favorite band. I was like, this, this is the band. You got these dueling guitars that are kind of soloing, but they're not really playing with each other. And the song is so catchy. And man, that guy singing like has a voice that, kind of sounds like the way I sing or that I sing, I sound like him or, you know, to have somebody with a reedy small voice like mine singing in a band that had that kind of like guitar riffage and kind of power underneath it was, a, was a template for me. I was like, Oh my God, I can do this. Like, yeah, I can, we can start a band like that. We can, if he can, if this guy can sing like that in this band, well, I can sing like myself in this other band. Um, start a band that kind of sounds like this. So, I mean, very early on, and it's probably no surprise to anybody who's heard our early records, like Tree People and specifically Built to Spill were, became huge influences on me. But it, it really began with that Something Fishes for Tomorrow time horror record. Uh, I mean, that was, that was like a cultural year zero for me in a lot of ways. They're almost like a Seattle band too, right? Like they played there quite a bit. Like they were almost local at a certain point. Yeah, they were uh, based in Boise, but yeah. I would imagine that, Boise in the late 80s, early 90s, and not necessarily very conducive to the kind of or or inviting to the kind of music that they were playing. I mean, I said to move that already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you could ask, you should ask Doug about that. But I think 
it, it seemed like there was probably a reason they were in Seattle and Portland a lot. And I remember going to see them, must have been 93, maybe 94. I saw them a bunch at the OK Hotel back in the day. And I remember going to see them and Doug wasn't there. And it was very confusing to me. Scott Smalljohn was the other singer, guitar player in that band. He was there and they were, there was no mention of where Doug Marsh was. And, you know, this is the early 90s. So this information, if a band like got a new member or somebody quit, it wasn't like on pitchfork the next morning, you know, like you didn't know, you didn't know why somebody wasn't there. And, and the story that I've been told, which I've never been able to confirm, and I should ask Doug about this at some point, was that they went to pick him up for the show and he didn't want to go. So they just left. And that was the last, I don't know if this show I saw was the first without him, but I, that was, that was the story I had heard as to why he was no longer in the tree people that in tree people is that he, they just showed him to pick him up. And he was like, no, I'd rather just smoke pot and stay here. And they're like, all right, fair enough. And then that was that. Um, I'm sure the, the, the actual, the, the, the truth of the matter is probably a little more complicated than that. But I do like that story as a way to quit a band just to be like, yeah. no, I don't feel like it just to kind of Bartleby the situation just be like, no, I, I prefer not to, I prefer not to go. You must have had a really good hookup in Boise to be turning down Seattle weed. I know, right? I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe it's, you know, it's, it was all coming down from Canada at that point anyway. So I guess, you know, it's probably coming down the same the same channels, you know? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. It was definitely the, uh, yeah, the BC Bud era um, yeah. back then. Uh, the other uh, thing I wanted to find out about, because you brought up emo earlier, and I'm not talking mm -hmm. about that post-Pinkerton emo that, you know, you brought <laughs> up before, but I'm talking about, like, the true emo stuff. Did you ever see, like, Galleon's Lap or Empty Set or any of those sort of bands that were around that time? No, those those bands really, really weren't on, on my radar at that point. Um, it was interesting when when Death Cab started leaving the Northwest and, and touring a bit and going into California, and we started to hear the the term emo getting thrown around a lot. This is like 98, 99. Um, and the, 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 the bands that I tended to associate with that term were not even bands that necessarily anybody, anybody would consider emo bands. They were just, I thought the term kind of referred to bands that were just writing about and like, and, and playing music that was of a very kind of evocative kind of, um, earnest emotional kind of note and so for me i thought of like coding as an emo band mm. or low was an emo band or the afghan wigs were an emo band i thought of which of course they they would none of those bands would ever be considered and under that uh under that moniker and they'd probably get mad at me for even slightly making the association but that i i, I was i always thought of the term emo as more of an uh uh, kind of an approach rather than an aesthetic, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and so it was kind of, it really took me back to find out that when people were using the term emo, they were basically talking about like punk songs about, you know, people's girlfriends leaving them or whatever, that that was, that, 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 that was the, the general tone of it. And, and to me, it, it, I, I, it wasn't anything that really ever kind of spoke to me. Um, it, it 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 is it, it never really kind of made any impression on me um uh, at the at the time but i think we were kind of i think because of the subject matter and the way that i wrote and the, the way we played 
music and things would be slow and then fast and loud and quiet. Um, you know, the, we kind of we kind of found ourselves in this like emo adjacent world where uh, people would use that term to describe us, but it wasn't it wasn't an all encompassing term. Um, the kids who were into those into the the big emo bands at the time those those kids would come to see us play, but they were standing alongside pavement fans or whatever. Yeah. So it was kind of like it, it kind of became this like interesting hodgepodge looking out at those early audiences that were, you know, um kids who were fans of you know the promise ring, get up kids, dashboard, what have you. Um and and then also fans of like blonde redhead and pavement and what things that were kind of more traditionally considered indie rock. And I felt that that was a, even at the time, I felt that was a pretty advantageous position to be in where you were able to kind of pull from a couple different, you know, pools of fan bases of musical genres, but that we weren't necessarily falling completely into one or the other. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to, I'm from the same era that you are in the way that I look at emo as being this thing that, you know, bands would just kind of get lumped into and there's not really a defined sound like i've heard people say black flag was kind of an emo band when you kind of get into the lyrics and look at like how they were writing stuff and the approach but that era in particular like promise ring yourselves like there was a sort of this where emo shifted and 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 um jimmy Eat world as well like there's a sort of like period where it's it's shifting and, and it is merging with that indie rock scene like that pavement dinosaur junior scene and i guess that's like the birth of the indie rock explosion in a lot of ways like a lot of these people were kind of coming out of this punk background and you know I don't, well, i'm talking to someone who's part of this thing but you know we're <laughs> we're we're taking it to like the next level and, and becoming indie rock bands like these massive indie rock bands yeah and i i would i would include pater lion in there as well yeah, um yeah. i mean we we you know some of our very early shows we, we played with pater the lion a lot and you know dave and i've been you know friends for 25 years uh because of those those early shows we played but i do think that it's worth noting that a lot of a lot of the kind of um seminal indie rock of the late 90s got a little ironic and cold mm. it, it got it got a little detached it got a little academic um it got a little too ironically kind of i, I already said ironically detached but when i think of the subgenres of indie rock in the late 90s i think of what was going on in chicago uh, with kind of the thrill jockey kind of scene. I, I think about what was happening in Louisville and this very kind of slow, kind of dirgeous kind of, or I should say like slow, dirgy, math rock kind of thing. Uh, you think about what's happening in North Carolina with Superchunk and Archers of Loaf and stuff like that. Um, and, of, you know, of course, Pavement being like, the, you know, this huge kind of band for all of us. And I think a lot of that music that I listened to in, in mostly in college was, um, you know, very clinical, uh, uh, kind of devoid of um, what was it devoid of? It was devoid of like humanity, I just, guess. Yeah, it was. That's yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It was devoid of just kind of a, a general humanity, and and um, and it, there was there weren't a lot of people singing about just the day-to-day -day things in life and, and that, you know, love, loss, death, 
there was there was a there was a a, a, a there was a, uh, a plethora of um I'm gonna find a, I'm gonna find a good way to edit this because I'm, I'm I know I'm the point I'm trying to make here, Damon. <laughs> no um, problem. Yeah, the, it was as if in a lot of that you know late '90s or mid late '90s indie rock that like being earnest was the least cool thing you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, that being ironically detached, being cool, um, being uh, kind of distant was was a large part of of the general aesthetic. And I think that maybe this kind of merging of uh, kind of what was traditionally like emo music and indie rock kind of a, there was like this this point at which some of the earnestness kind of came back and i think it might have been one of the things that attracted a lot of people to the genre and that yeah I, I want you know it's one of the reasons the cure is one of my favorite bands even all these years later it's like i you know listening to disintegration when i was 13 14 years old and feeling those songs so deeply at 13 or 14 and i put those records on now and it, it's like a time machine it takes me back to that period I think maybe in some way people were yearning for some earnestness and some humanity uh, and some just real feelings to kind of be put back into music, but it didn't have to all be this kind of collegiate, uh, detached, ironic experience that you, we could talk about, um, you know, the things that, that kind of the small things in life that kind of really move us, you know, you know, love and loss and death and, and everything in between. I think it's, you know, you brought up Pavement, or I guess I brought them up originally, but we've been talking about Pavement, and I think it's interesting to look at them in the punk context. Like, here's a band that, you know, like, well, with Malcolmus, like, came out of, like, punk rock, and at that point, like, they're going to the Gilman to see shows. Like, he saw Op Ivy play and all this sort of things. And so to, to kind of, like, in all these bands, like, they all kind of come out of this sort of punk rock world, and I think that's one of the great things about punk is at a certain point, not that you outgrow it, but you just get to a mm-hmm. point where you're like, I got to do something else. And that's where innovation comes in. Like you've had all this freedom as a young person to experiment with music. And then eventually you're going to find your voice. And yeah, it's not going to sound like minor threat anymore, but it's going to be something new. And that new thing is going to, in a lot of cases, change music. I would completely agree. And I, and I think that I'm, I'm always a little leery of people who didn't grow up even a little bit punk. Yes. If you're not hip, if you didn't, if you weren't interested in hip hop, rap, or punk, I, I don't know what you saw in, in mainstream society at the time. That was yeah. so great. The the only, I will add one more thing to that. And that is uh, our, our keyboard player, Zach grew up um, into just really heavy free jazz type shit. And, and for him, and when we, when we would talk about it, like he, he didn't grow up uh, with punk per se, but in, in his words, he was like, yeah, but I was listening to like Bitches Brew and, you know, Ornette Coleman and shit like that. And that was like, that was as punk, if not more punk than punk. And I was like, yeah, I, I hear what you're, I, I get your point, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and for me, one thing that I've, as I've kind of, my, my musical uh, taste has broadened and I've learned about more music than just punk and indie rock is that I kind of erroneously got the impression that Black Flag had invented DIY or something, right? That, that, you know, doing your own shows and carrying your own gear and all this kind of shit was like, that this was the invention of punk rockers. And, you know, as my musical horizons and interests have, bri- have broadened a little bit, you know, you look at these like old, you look at like the Lubin brothers, these like country guys who are like strapping double bases to the roof of their cars and like drive around doing 
two or three shows a day or, you know, these like jazzers in like the forties and fifties who were just hopping in a car and just like driving around, showing up, doing shows. Like, you know, there was a lot, you know, DIY has been a part of the American kind of musical mosaic for much longer than punk. And it was a real eye opener for me to realize that because for, for the longest time I associated, you know, setting up your own gear with being punk. And in actuality, this is the thing that musicians have been doing for, for decades, you know? I think punk was the first place that it became a point of pride where you were bragging about doing this. And it wasn't like, like it wasn't about the aspiration so much as it was about the act of doing it. And not that these artists weren't proud of the way they did things too, but I just feel like punk is where you're like, look at me, I'm carrying my own gear. Look at me. I'm doing this myself. <laughs> Everyone look here. Well, and as, a, and as a teenager going to see shows at the OK Hotel or Velvet Elvis or wherever, that made a huge impression on me because for the longest time, and I feel I've said this a number of times uh, in the past, but, um, you know, when you're growing up and you don't know any better, you think that the only way you can be in a band is if you can like shred guitar and play the Enormo Dome, you know? You, you think that that's, you, you're never giving the impression that there's any way, any other way to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think for all of us, you know, myself included, there's this moment where you go to a show as a teenager and you see the singer of the band you're there to see come out from backstage with a guitar case and an amp, you know, and start kind of positioning it on stage and tuning the guitar. And there's not this like, you know, there's not a bunch of roadies and a musical interlude and the lights dropping down. It's like, all right, uh, you guys ready? Okay, let's start playing. And it's it sounds so trite to say it now all these years later, but that did make a huge impression on me because I didn't think that there was any other way to do it. I thought that the only way to be in a band was to be virtuosic and to have a lot of money and to be very popular and successful. I, did, I didn't realize that there was that you could do it yourself. And once I think when you realize that the first time you realize that it makes a huge kind of impression on your, on how you move forward from that point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, uh, and then you learn about stagecraft and you're like, Oh, there's a reason bands do this because that way you get the audience excited and there's a huge pop and everything like that. But yeah, you know, I think it's a, it definitely is. It's still like, I feel awkward standing on the side of the stage. Not my band would argue that I, this, but that I'm not helping set up gear. But, you know, I, I do feel a little <laughs> awkward in those points. I got to talk about Pinwheel. Um, so okay. <laughs> how did Pinwheel come together? Uh, so Pinwheel is a band that I started with my friend Justin Kennedy in 93, I think. And he was going up. We were living in Bremerton. He was a senior in high school. I was a junior. And he was going up to study at Whatcom Community College up in Bellingham. Um, and he was a year ahead of me. So he had gone up there and we had decided that I would follow him up there and we would start a band and it would be called Pinwheel. And we started just kind of trading cassettes back and forth through the mail of, you know, here's a, you know, just a dictaphone recording of like, here's a new song I wrote or whatever. And that we, there were these, you know, he would be home from college or I would go up to visit and we would sit in a room with a couple of guitars and work on these songs together. Um, so really the only real reason I ended up going to Western Washington University in Bellingham was that there was a band waiting for me to join. I mean, he literally found a drummer uh, and, a, and, a, and a bass player. And, um, and, uh, and, and I moved up there to start my freshman year and we started this, this little band. And we were kind of this two singer songwriter 
band, like his songs were a little more kind of Brit pop ish sort of. My songs were kind of these like jawbreaker, sunny day real estate, you know, kind of rip off amalgams. Um, so it was it was a, it was kind of a, it was kind of an interesting and somewhat kind of convoluted uh, setup that we would play something that would be very kind of shuffly and um, sound like flop or something like that. And then go into a song that sounded like, you know, I had, you know, like a, a, a bad Sunday day real estate, you know, <laughs> like uh, copy or something like that. But, um, but yeah, it was fun. So we, we never, we did a couple recordings, but never released anything properly. There was a demo, a couple demo tapes made, but yeah, at the time uh, you're recording yourself was not as easy as it is now. Um, with GarageBand and Pro Tools and stuff. And it wasn't as if there was like a proper studio to go into in, in Bellingham. So um, yeah, there's a couple of recordings floating out there that people might find them interesting. Uh, you, you know, they're, they're, definitely, they're definitely a part of my uh, musical kind of story and lineage, but I, I, I'm not sure if, if they're required listening <laughs> for anybody out there, but they're out there. I'm sure they're, they're on YouTube if, if anyone wants to check them out. There are only four of the eight songs on YouTube, and I will I will beg to differ. I think they are very much worth listening to. And I want to I would not, my, I write like a child, but uh, I wrote <laughs> here Pinwheel, Suede, Jawbreaker, because those were the two sounds I kind of heard in that, and I found it really interesting. There are some songs that you're saying with like Britpop influence that do kind of have like that sort of suede vocal affectation, and then there are other songs that to me sound like Jawbreaker or sort of Super Chunk kind of influence i guess it's sunny Day real estate too but like yeah i found that i found it really interesting in those four songs and i do and i do think you know you do see where you're gonna go as a songwriter and some of that stuff i yeah I, I think it's definitely interesting uh it's definitely interesting as a uh you know kind of transitional liminal kind of piece uh that i think definitely kind of points in the direction that i would end up going uh, in the, in a couple of years after that, but yeah, I mean, I was I, to this day, I still super chunk still one of my favorite bands. Um, they're, they were incredibly, uh, important to me as a teenager. Uh, and you know, and jawbreaker was the same way. I mean, those, you know, I, you know, 24 hour revenge therapy came out in 94, I believe mm -hmm. that was my freshman year of college. And, uh, you know, that record was another one of those albums. Uh, you know, to kind of bring around a super chunk, really foolish, super chunks, foolish and jawbreakers, 24 hour inch therapy were two records that um, were, you know, kind of served as a particular template for me in that you could kind of fuse this kind of up-tempo punk inspired guitar music with um, very earnest storytelling and lyrics. And so, yeah, those, those records were huge for me. I, and I find it like, I find it so fascinating with uh, that sound because it is something that where those people are 100% punk. Like you talk to those people, they all talk about punk music, but yet they're taking it to a completely different place at that point. And certainly in the case of Jawbreaker, like the, the sonic youth influence that's in there, there's like a lot of stuff that's not in a lot of other pop punk peers of theirs around that time. Absolutely. And especially, you know, with a record like Unfun or something like that, mm -hmm. like, or Bivouac, Bivouac, especially, um, there's, there's not, there's very little that's like traditionally punk in that record. Yeah. There's these kind of long expansive songs and kind of halftime kind of dirges and instrument, long instrumental breaks. Uh, 
And they, they must have been a fairly confusing band for people in that era. Uh, it, it's, it seems like they're, they're, you know, obviously there are people who loved them when they were active, but it seems as if, and, you know, you might be able to speak to this better than I, that Jawbreaker was one of those bands that the fans came after they broke up. Mm. That, pe- that they were kind of ahead of their time a little bit. And of course, you know, when Dear You came out, that was this huge deal for huge deal breaker for people because it was on a major label and Blake was actually singing and oh my God, how, how could you possibly do that? Um, but I remember seeing them, I, I saw them on that tour. I saw them on the Dear You, Dear you tour. They play that. Um, I saw them on the Dear You tour and they played at Western Washington University. And because Nick uh, from Death Cab was doing concerts at Western, I was able to kind of just be hanging out backstage uh, <laughs> trying to get close to uh blake schwarzenbach and i believe i smoked this i believe i smoked a cigarette with him on the balcony of the venue trying to be very cool and i know i gave him a pinwheel tape um being like this is my band man trying to be really cool uh you know uh he did not write or call so i can only assume that the cassette uh found its way into a dumpster somewhere along the i-5 corridor um but that was it that was like my first you know, that was one of the first times I, I, I remember meeting somebody who was who I, I admired uh, and who was so formative to me. And to his credit, he was he was really nice to me. He was super cool. Um, you know, we have now, as I'm sure you have, played a lot of college shows. And uh, there's and, you know, sometimes that, you know, looking back on them now, uh, looking back on the shows that we were putting on for other bands i could see now that yeah those shows probably weren't that great from like a <laughs> you know sound perspective or or whatever but um you know it, it was a real testament to like what how how cool he was with me at that point because i was just some i was just some fucking kid bothering him backstage you know i must have been 19 or 20 or something like that so the fact that he was so uh so cordial and 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 nice to me at that point was it, it, it made a huge impression on me well i think it also goes to show something that I've learned from this podcast is that the the Punisher kids are the next generation's rock heroes. Like the kids that are punishing you, not all the time, not when they're like a 40 year old person, you know, but like when you're meeting a young kid yeah. who's just overly enthusiastic, wants to tell you about their band, that's that extra gear that you need to do it and make it in this business. You know, you need to be that kind of person that's like, I want to be around these people because I'm, I'm, I'm a peer. I will eventually be a peer. And it goes to, you know, the moral of that story is also don't throw away those demo tapes because that pinwheel tape's got to be worth like a grand now. So <laughs> I think I have one of them somewhere. So I, I, it might be worth looking on eBay to see what they're worth. Not that I would sell mine, but this has never be been curious. sold on Discogs. One has never been sold on Discogs. So, really? Yeah. Really? Interesting. Wow. Rare. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and I, I'd like to hope that, you know, throughout my musical travels that I've been uh cool to everybody that came up to me i'm sure there's probably been some moments where people caught me on a bad day um because you know i'm a human being you know i'm not perfect but i think for the most part i've I've really tried to kind of carry myself especially with young people in a similar fashion where you realize that um that uh you know they whether they should or or not they look up to you and and you know they want to be doing what you're doing and even just spending a little bit of time with a kid and giving them some encouragement or some advice if they're asking for it. Uh, it's stuff that you remember forever. I mean, I, 
I'm not going to not going to slag him off like in this interview, but I remember a, a couple of years after this interaction with with Blake, uh, Death Cab opened for a band in Bellingham that was a really important band to me, and uh, the singer of that band could not have been more of a fucking dick. And you know, there are bands still active. I see them around. Sometimes we played festivals with them, but I, I I'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll never forget that moment of like, yeah, I just I just gave this guy a compliment. And he acted like I was asking for his firstborn, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it wasn't, we, I, you know, and, and I remember just kind of such a fucking shitty thing, man. Why'd you, why'd you have to act that way? And yeah, you know, I also tend to hold grudges and, 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 you know, hold on to things way too long. So here I am almost 25 years later complaining about this, but it, but it made an, it as you know, it, it definitely made a mark on me. It's, mm-hmm. it's like when you meet somebody that you admire and you're just trying to give them a compliment and they, in so many words, tell you to fuck off. Um, that's, that makes you feel really small and shitty. Yeah. And from that moment on, I was like, I'm never going to do this to anybody. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want somebody to have a similar story about me. Maybe somebody does. Maybe as, as I said, you know, somebody might've caught me on a bad day. I might've been catching this guy on a bad day. I don't know what was going on in this, guy, in this guy's life at that point. But unfortunately that's the impression I was left with. And I can tell you off air who it was, but, um, uh, but that, that was the impression that was left with me about this person. And that became the all encompassing kind of, that's all I needed to know about this person mm-hmm. was that I, all I wanted to do was tell you that I admired you and you basically told me to fuck off. And, and those ones are just as informative in a weird way as the good interactions, you know, for later in life. Like you're saying, like, this is what makes you not want to be that person or, you know, it just, and, and not, we're all human, right? Like you're saying, and we all have bad days yeah. and people might catch us on a bad day, but at the same time, like, you think about these things when you have it, when you're having a bad day and you're interacting with people, you're like, you know what? I, I don't want to be that guy for this person. No. And also, and let's, let's just say hypothetically that in this particular case, all this guy wanted to be, all this guy wanted was to be left alone. It's, it's so much easier to be nice to people. Yeah. If you, if, if you're, if what you want is for someone to leave you alone, the easiest thing for you to do is go, Oh man, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you saying that. Mm-hmm. what's your name steve you know nice to meet you steve yeah. um okay well listen man i'm gonna i'm gonna get back to my book or whatever I'm like oh cool man if that you know what i'm saying like yeah. if that's yeah. if, if 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 really what you want to if you really if you really don't want to be bothered it's so much easier to be cool with somebody than it is to be dismissive and be a dick to them um and the older i get um you know the more i'm i feel incredibly fortunate that anybody even fucking cares anymore that I make records. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, I mean, it, I mean, this is, I mean, this has all been gravy after like the second record, you know? So, yeah. and I've, and you know, over the course of my career, yeah, there's moments where I've lost perspective. I've, I've gotten, we've been overworked or uh, I've overworked myself and kind of, you know, dug myself into a hole and, and taken this thing for granted, you know, but the older I get, the, the less the less I'm allowing myself to even kind of dip into that kind of negativity, because it's 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 just really incredible that after all these years, people still care and still come to shows and uh, still buy the vinyl and you know want to talk to me on podcasts. You know, well, this might be another off-air answer, but uh, who's sixty and punk about? Uh, that will be an person? off-air answer. That's an off-air, but it's yeah, a real it is. person. That's that's a real story. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 years ago, I had, a, I had a, uh, the song 16 punk was on our, our last record. Uh, thank you for today. It's the last song on that record. And I, I had had, 
a very bad interaction with somebody that I admired greatly. And I, I somebody I'd known for a long period of time, uh, you know, alcohol, drugs were involved. Um, uh, the subject of the song was in a really, really dark place. And um, it was at a music festival and this, and, and this person was behaving very badly, embarrassing themselves. Um, but I could, I could see, I could see it in their eyes through the, you know, the alcohol haze and like the cocaine haze. I could see through that and see like, oh, you think you're being like a rebellious kid right now. You think that what you're doing is cool. And as we all do, as we get older, we sometimes see the world through our 25 year old eyes or whatever, but we have gray hair, you know? And we're middle-aged men now mm. or older. And so for me, I, I kind of wanted to write a song about, about uh, him and from a perspective of like wanting to bring some empathy to the situation, but also being, there's a little bit of an indictment in the line that there's nothing elegant in being drunk. There's nothing righteous being 60 and a punk, you know? And, and you know, I, when, I, when, I, when I, that song came out, I, I initially had this thought of like, I hope people don't take this the wrong way because I'm in no way trying to say in this song that identifying as a punk at 60 or 70 or any age for that matter is inappropriate or not cool or anything like that. Um, what I meant in that lyric was that, you know, there's nothing righteous being 60 and acting like a punk, like, like acting like a, not a punk, like, punk music but like a punk you know yeah, yeah. and and being and just acting like a child um and you know it's interesting it's actually kind of i'm actually in, it's interesting that you brought this song up because i i i've often thought since the song came out if anybody heard that song and thought like oh this guy's saying that it's not cool to be punk at 60 or something like that which is never was never my intent but um you know the the silver lining on the story is that this person eventually got sober um and kind of clean themselves up. And I've I've never I have yet to kind of even address them more so because I hadn't seen I haven't seen them in so many years, whether or not they're even aware the song is out there or if they were able to read between the lines and know that it was about them. But um yeah, you know, I think that I think that one of the difficult things about um getting older and playing music, and specifically rock or punk or indie rock or whatever. Is that you know that this lifestyle and these these kind of styles of music kind of put you in a particular state of arrested development, you know, um, you know, especially when every night you're interfacing with the, you know the 22 year old version of yourself that you're playing songs that you wrote when you're 22, right? Mm. You know, I'm living every night. I'm kind of reliving my life between ages 21 and 45, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can kind of get a little lost and you can kind of get lost in that time machine, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, I it, it's 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 a I think that there are very few examples of people growing old gracefully in in our genres. Some people are able to do it, um, do it well, and other people are unable to do it. And the song, to me, as much as about is it almost like a, it's almost like a song to myself, also saying like, "Look, you're getting older. You're going to continue to get older, hopefully." And, you know, let's try to do this with some level of dignity. Yeah, I think the only way to do it with dignity is realizing, realizing at a certain point, it's not yours anymore. And the 
permission to act poorly in some cases or all this stuff. It's not yours anymore. Like this is for young people to have this thing. It doesn't say you have to leave the the morals of it or, or anything behind, but it, it can be like this Neverland world where you don't ever have to grow up. And I certainly feel like, you know, I stopped maturing the year I became a professional musician. I feel like yeah. that, was, that was it. Like, all right, 27 forever. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say I feel very similar. And I think that one of the one of one thing that exacerbates that um, is the advent of social media mm-hmm. and people uh, deciding that they need to not only that they should have a, have an opinion on everything, but that it's their duty to broadcast that opinion at every every turn. Mm-hmm. And you know, as I think about getting older as a musician and kind of the legacy that I want to leave behind or that I want to maintain, at least hopefully during the course of my career, you know, one of one of the things I definitely do not want to do is. <laughs> be the kind of person that is just spouting off all the time on social media about shit and kind of ruining their own legacy. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't have to like go in any names right now, but we know who we're talking about. There's a lot of people who just can't shut the fuck up. Just can't get out of their own way uh, for whatever reason, feel they need to be on stage all the time. And it's just not at a certain point, it's, it's no longer becoming, it's no longer interesting. It just becomes kind of sad and pathetic. And, um, I would much rather be remembered when I'm no longer on this mortal coil for like the music that I made than like a Twitter fight I got into with like fucking, you know, Ted Cruz or some shit. You know what I mean? Like I'd rather, I'd rather not have that be a part of my obituary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting how we live in this world where the maximum rock and roll letter section is now the dorm- dominant form of cultural expression like this because people just want to be heard like that was why people did these personal zines back then it's so fascinating that all this stuff that was just part of punk and there's a you know a natural reason to kind of want to do this stuff be it record shows be it all that are just part of mm-hmm. the general cultural experience now like it's just been assumed even in the conversations we were having in punk like back in the 90s conversations about all these subjects uh are now much more part of the mainstream in a way that it's kind of uh, it's interesting to see happen yeah and i think that you know to your point uh it has been uh really heartening for me to see a lot of the social issues that were considered fringe in the 90s uh now becoming mainstream due in large part to people's ability to kind of discuss them in public mm-hmm. and to and to have their voices um uh amplified in a way that as a small zine at fallout records just simply wasn't going to do <laughs> no. right uh but you know but with with the good stuff you have to take the bad stuff too right so um it's it's you know it, it is it, it it is very interesting to me and heartening to see that you know i do believe even even in the wake of our rogue Supreme Court uh, um, here in the states and the decisions they've been making over the last month. You know, I when I do look at where what the the point at which I kind of came of age and came online as a socially conscious teenager to where I am now, that we've made an enormous amount of progress, mm. and and there we we there is a lot more progress that needs to be made. We always seem to kind of take a couple steps forward and take a step back. That's the way it goes. Um, it's very easy for me to say that as a, a white male in America, 
white straight male in America. But um, I, I do believe that is the case. And, um, you know, we just have to kind of keep our foot on the accelerator and just try to keep moving forward as much as 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 as, as people are trying to pull us backwards. Did you do a zine ever? I'm sorry, say again? Did you do a zine ever? I never did. No, never did. I never I never fancied myself a writer. Um, so I, I never did. Um, but uh, it has been kind of cool to see a lot of, you know, younger people starting to kind of pick up that medium again, mm -hmm. um, kind of rejecting a blog or a Tumblr or whatever, you know, or just the, using Instagram or whatever, and kind of starting to go back and doing actual paper zines again. And like, I go to my local record store and I see a lot more there than there were even 10 years ago. So um, that's cool to see. Well, Ben, you have been very generous and gone way over your time. And I don't want to keep you up to the last second before you get picked up. Cause I feel like uh, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of advantage by doing that, but anytime you want to come back on here and wax philosophical about punk or just talk about, about undertow shows, we can just go through every undertow show you saw <laughs> show by show. You are always welcome. Well, thank you. It's been a real treat, Damien. And um, yeah, I, like I said, I love your show and it's a, it's an honor to be here and yeah, let's do it, man. We got we, we're just scratching the surface. Let's let's dig in, man. Thank you, Ben, for coming on the show. And once again, pre-order and pre-save Asphalt Meadows now. Uh, it's coming out on September the sixteenth. Once again, my birthday. How does that work out so well? And uh, in the meantime, check out Here to Forever. A fantastic new single and an amazing video directed by former Turned Out of Punk guest Lance Bangs. And there you are. We're all one big Turned Out of Punk family. And uh, Ben can come back anytime he wants to the show. That was a lot of fun. Speaking of a lot of fun, on the next episode of Turned Out of Punk, or the next episode on this channel you're going to hear, is the From the Vault episode with the first appearance of my buddy George Pettit from Alexis on Fire. Alexis on Fire have a brand new record called The Otherness that's out in stores. And then also Dead Tired just announced a brand new record as well that's going to be coming out really soon. A fantastic. Check out the Dead Tired stuff. An incredible band. More on that on that episode. And then coming up later on in, on this channel, next episode of the new Turned Out of Punk show that you're going to hear is going to be first in a series of episodes kind of throughout the summer with other members of Alexis on Fire and some part twos and stuff in celebration of the otherness and in celebration of, of friendships and kicking it off with my buddy from Alexon Fire, Chris Steele will be on the show. And this is a, a, a really, uh, you know, a really awesome episode with someone who's been through a, a heavy journey to kind of get to this point and is uh, doing a lot, very inspiring. Um, and you will uh, hear it all coming up on the next episode of the show. Once again, thank you everyone for listening. You can find uh, more information about this podcast, as I said, by emailing turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com uh, or following it on social media stuff. And that is that. Once again, as always, Black Lives Matter, the lives of Indigenous peoples and the issues of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. Uh, we need to stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths, different religions, different races, different, you just knock all that shit out because we're not talking about political stuff here. We're talking about basic human rights stuff. Get involved if there's organizations that are affecting positive change around you or are dealing with issues that you feel strongly about. Get involved. Contribute your time, your money, 
your voice if if needed. Um, there's lots of ways to help, and it'll help you feel better to help. Uh, also, added to that, we need to make sure we keep our hands out of other people's reproductive systems and telling them what to do with their reproductive systems. And that's not just in America, you know, that's, you know, I'm not in America, I'm in Canada and this stuff applies just as much to Canada, it applies everywhere. Um, so, you know, once again, try and get involved if you can. Speaking of getting involved, make your own culture, start a band, start a fanzine, start anything. Anyone can do this stuff. It's all based on people's participation in it. And if you see something or you don't see something that you want to see in punk and hardcore, make that thing because... Anyone can do it. I think that's the reoccurring theme, hopefully, on this show, is that anyone can do it. And I think pretty much any guest would tell you that anyone can do this stuff. It doesn't have to be, you know, something so grandiose. Maybe it's just drawing a picture. Maybe it's just making a song for yourself, you know. Speaking of doing something for yourself, try meditating. I didn't believe in it. And uh, and now I feel like a fool. I, I It took a long time to kind of click with me, but now that it has, I, I really do find I get a lot from it. And... Maybe you will too. Sign your organ donor cards because I've seen miracles happen when people do that. I really have. I've, I've, I've witnessed firsthand miracles kind of happen because people signed their organ donor cards and gave that gift to someone else. And by the time they come looking for your organs, you don't need them. It's not like that Monty Python sketch that was horribly, horribly ripped off by you can't do that on television. Just like wholesale ripped off by you can't do that on television. Like the people involved in that should be ashamed. But Anyway, sign your organ donor cards because it really can give someone like a, a, a new life. And I think that's it. Stay safe. Try and treat people around you with kindness and realize that everyone's having a hard day. And that is that. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if you can tell, but I've been so sick for the last 24 hours. That's why this thing's late going up. Uh, but here it is. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the next episode.